This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary Media and Belted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Dave Ramsey, CEO of Ramsey Solutions. So I had built this thing that looked glorious on the outside, but it was a facade. It was it was very poorly built, very badly structured debt, and too much debt. And, um, you know, I, I truly did not know what I was doing, and it caught up with me. How a young real estate investor got rich by age 25, lost it all by 30, and then used his experience to teach others how to avoid the same thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, according to the Federal Reserve, American households have taken on nearly $14 trillion of debt— credit card debt, mortgages, car loans, student loans. We have a culture and a financial system that encourages us and sometimes forces us to spend more than we have. Well, Dave Ramsey learned the hard way about the downsides of debt, and those lessons have shaped his life and his career. It all began when he launched a real estate business in Tennessee when he was still in his early 20s. He built a portfolio worth more than $4 million. And then... By his late 20s, he lost all of it and filed for bankruptcy. But that was only step one in Dave's career. Through connections at his church, he began to slowly build a business, counseling people on how to manage their money, how to avoid the same mistakes he made. Today, Dave hosts a popular radio show that reaches millions of listeners, and he's the author of best-selling books on personal finance. He recently appeared on the cover of Money Magazine next to big block letters calling him the debt slasher. But unlike other personal finance gurus, Dave's advice is based on a slightly different source, the Bible. Dave Ramsey is an evangelical Christian, and he says you can actually learn a lot about money by reading the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean his advice is just for Christians or people who are religious. It's pretty practical stuff anyone can use. Dave Ramsey grew up in Antioch, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Nashville, and both of his parents worked in real estate. Well, they were both one generation off the farm, so they believed in work, whatever it was, whatever form it took. And uh, work is where money comes from, is what we were always taught. You know, and I think I probably was a little business nerd 
actually. So, you know, I always laugh when I'm talking to audiences and tell them I came home at 12 years old and asked my dad for money to go to the market and get an IC. And he said, you don't need a, you don't need money. You need a job. Um, before I knew it, we'd printed up 500 business cards that said Dave's Lawns, and I had 27 yards to cut at 12 years old. I think that's child abuse. <laughs> well, I mean, you're right. You know, you so you, you're mowing lawns and you're making money, and and there you go. You got some pocket money. That's it. Doing a P and L on the lawn mowers, and yeah. Did you when by the time you were old enough to go to college, did you already were you already sort of convicted, like in the idea that you would go into business in some some form, some way? I intended to be uh, a real estate mogul. That was my goal. Hmm. Uh, having grown up in the business, I, I didn't I didn't want to do residential. I wanted to do commercial. And so I went to get a degree in real estate and finance. And, uh, and I did. And I sold real estate residentially all the way through college, starved to death. But this was the early 80s when interest rates were 15 to 16%. So you, so you were like a real estate agent what, in yes. college? Yeah. Yes. I was working 40, 60 hours a week, but wasn't a lot of houses selling in those days. Yeah. That's a tough job because you have to be sunny all the time. Like you've got really demanding clients who get frustrated when their houses sit on the market, and you've just got to always be available and happy and pot. Was that hard to do? No, I, I don't know if I knew anything else. Hmm. Um I mean, I, number one, I was 18 years old, so I wasn't that smart. <laughs> but who lists their house with an 18-year-old kid? But I talked some people into it. I'm walking around in my disco suit and getting stuff done, you know. But, uh, I mean, this is 1980. Yeah. I didn't know any different. I didn't know any other thing to, to, to do. Yeah. So you graduate college, 1982, with this idea of getting into commercial real estate. Um Obviously, the first stop is to get into residential real estate, I'm assuming. Were you doing a lot of that around the Nashville area pretty much right after you graduated? Well, I graduated and took a job making $18,000 a year with this company, uh, syndicating uh, these propane outlets uh, and so forth. That didn't last very long. The company went broke. Took another job with a, uh, a franchise company doing site locations for them. And so I'd fly into cities and lease the building for the franchisee coming in and that lasted six or eight, ten months. Um, that company got in trouble, and I got in trouble. Uh, just a young, arrogant guy. And ended up selling residential. Uh, and then from there, I left so the residential selling. I sold new houses. Uh, rates were down to, my goodness, this is 84. I think they were down to about 12% at that point, 11%. And since they've been so high for so long, you know, everybody's lining up to buy a house, yeah. pent-up demand. So we were selling houses, and I left that to start uh, buying and selling on my own and just started buying properties and flipping them. These were residential properties or commercial properties? I We'd flip anything, anything I could get the banker to finance and probably done 1,500 of those uh, flips before uh, and ended up keeping a few of them as rentals. But that was before there's cable TV to tell you how to flip this house. It was, we were just really doing it. You were basically buying and selling any property you could get a hold of. How are you doing that? How are you financing it? Just talking the bank into it. I mean, hmm. uh, the bankers were coming off of this high interest rate uh, recessionary environment, and they were uh, you know, they were getting back to lending mode again. And I, of course I grew up in Nashville and so I knew a, in the real estate business and I, mm. and so I could walk in and have a conversation and say, Hey, I've, you know, I found this $150,000 house. I can buy it for 80 and they would put it on a 90 day note. And, uh, I'd go in, you know, we'd run some paint carpet through it and, and, and you know, flip the thing and make 40 or 50,000 bucks on it. Wow. So this really was, was taking off, I guess. I mean, you were going to these small banks and they, you had a relationship with them. 
you could get the, mm-hmm. the, the financing or the, you get the money for 90 days or whatever it mm-hmm. was. But then the, the, the clock starts ticking, right? The pressure's on. You got to put carpet down, paint the house, get it on the market and sell it and then pay the loan back and hopefully make some profit. Exactly. And how, how, how'd you do? We did very well. Uh, by the time I was uh, 24, 25, right in there, I made 250000 a year cash, taxable wow. profit. Uh, and so I was cooking, and, and we kept a bunch of the properties as we went along. Not a bunch of them, but enough of them that we ended up with about $4 million worth. Some of that $4 million worth was stuff in process for a flip. Sure. This was all in the Nashville area, most of those yes. properties? Yeah. And at the time, I mean, Nashville obviously is a hugely hot market today. Um, at the time, in you know the mid '80s, was Nashville a hot market? No, it was a medium. It was just a medium-sized southern city at that point. Uh, I mean, we didn't have the uh, you know the food scene, the hipster base, the stuff we've got now. There's this place is it's on fire. Yeah, it's a tech corridor now. Yeah. For goodness sakes! All right, so you built up a portfolio worth more than four million dollars by. 86, you're like 25, 26 years old. Did you just think that you were a genius at that at that point in your life? <laughs> yeah, because I was, I was that stupid <laughs> and arrogant. Yeah, I'm driving a Jaguar. I thought I was something. <laughs> uh, yeah, they actually wrote a little article about me in the newspaper and uh, how smart we were, you know, golden child or whatever, yeah. all this stuff, the young guy. The wonderkind, yeah. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we really thought we were a lot hotter stuff than we were. <laughs> you just thought, look, this is this is foolproof. I've got this great system going. Meantime, a lot of that was accrued debt, right? You had, you had a lot of debt at that point. Yeah, we had about $3 million worth of debt and wow. about $4 million in property. So there's the million-dollar net worth, the difference. Right. But you were thinking this is going to be fine because you can finance this through debt and you can eventually repay debt, and that's no problem. Well, I mean, I grew up in the real estate business and with finance professors teaching us the power of leverage and good debt. And uh, this is all good debt. It owns assets that's turning into income and, you know, all this good debt, good debt, good debt that that people, the pundits all throw this stuff around uh, who haven't actually experienced it. But uh, as Warren Buffett says, leverage is a, a, a cruel cruel item. It, it, it will suck you in <laughs> and woo you, and then it will cut you. <laughs> yeah. Well, this would have a, a obviously, a transformational um, uh, effect on your life as somebody who, who really does not like debt. But I guess you've got this $4 million portfolio. You get $3 million in debt. Things are fine, except at, I guess, at a certain point, your lenders call in your loans. What what happened? I mean, you knew these banks. You knew these bankers. Um why did they call them in? The banks got sold. There, the law changed in the state of Tennessee, allowing uh, banks that were not chartered to the state of Tennessee to buy Tennessee banks for the first time. Hmm. Prior to that, it was all domestically chartered banks, uh, which kept it kind of small town feel. Sure. And all of a sudden, these outside conglomerates started buying up the local banks. And I've got a guy uh, 800 miles away looking at a portfolio and goes, there's a kid 26 years old owes us a million two in 90 day notes. This is scary. Uh, let's limit this relationship, which is banker talk for ruin his life. And, you know, our largest lender called our notes. We weren't even late, but they just questioned the quality of the collateral, which on a commercial note, they've got the ability to do. And I was an idiot and signed that piece of paper. So they, you know, the, I signed up for a trip and they helped me take it. So what did that mean? Did you start getting letters in the mail that said, hey, uh, you've got 90 days to pay pay us back? They brought me in for dinner and um, uh, explained to me that they were calling all the notes in person. And, of course, it's all tied up in real estate. And 
we've been running this system for a while and there's nothing wrong with the system until you just all of a sudden pull the plug on it. You pull the rug out from under the house of cards, the house of cards falls even faster. And so, yeah, we did, we hit, we crashed and we, it took two and a half years to lose everything we owned. And that, that when you say we, you're talking about you, who else, your wife, my wife, my you wife were married at that, po- at that yes. point. Did you have kids? Um, our, uh, we had a toddler and a baby was born the year that we filed bankruptcy in 1988. Wow. Okay. So you are, that is some serious pressure, right? You've got a, you're so young, you've got two little kids, you've got to pay $3 million back yep. to the banks. Um, how was your, like, you know, what was your state of mind like? Uh, well, I, I think it was survival mode, just fight. And so one year we made 250000 The next year we spent the whole year selling everything, trying to meet these obligations. My taxable income was $6,000. And so, um, yeah, we went from uh, sheer terror to sheer exhilaration to sheer terror on a daily basis. And I uh, thought we were going to make it, thought we were going to make it, thought we were going to make it. And um, uh, Sharon was so scared she couldn't breathe. I, I was... Uh, my little uh, arrogant self-esteem was completely gone, so I was not only broke, I was broken, <laughs> and uh, it just it just it it just about killed us. I mean, we almost got divorced. We Sharon always laughs and said she would have left, but she didn't have a car. I mean, it was just it was bad. Everything was leaving, and um, and we went from you know uh, growing up middle class to living the high life to uh, being paupers in, in just a very short number of years. So how were you able to even begin to pay that debt back? You had to sell that property, presumably some of it fire sale prices. Exactly. And that's not the best way to sell. No. Yeah, exactly. So we, we didn't make it. I mean, we, we paid it all the way down to, as I think it's under 400000 We almost mm-hmm. made it. But um, the, uh, the, the lawsuits and the execution on the lawsuits and coming to get the baby bed out of the house and this kind of stuff, it just it reached a breaking point. Plus, I emotionally ran out of gas after two and a half years of fighting it spiritually ran out of gas and just hit the wall and i just said i i don't know what else to do i was a 28 year old kid with a brand new baby and a toddler and a marriage hanging on by a thread i, I no longer was a superhero how'd you pay your bills did you i mean did you call your your parents were they able to help you no i mean we just paid them f- first i mean we bought food out of the money that had coming in before we paid some banker yeah and um you know the water did get cut off the electric did get cut off but we would scratch the money together and put it back on and um, and we had to keep the basics of life running uh, enough to be able to fight and work on this monopoly game that we were losing. You eventually filed for bankruptcy in 1988. Um, did you think that that was going to kind of, uh, you know, that that's it? I'm sort of ruined. Yeah, I, I, you know, our story is one of bouncing back, but we didn't really bounce. Hmm. Um, I sat around and whined and moaned and blamed everybody else for my stupidity. It was the government's fault. It was the IRS's fault. It was mm-hmm. the bank's fault. And it was my fault. I was the one signed up for this trip. I built this house of cards. But it took a, it took a while for me to get my, my uh, emotions and my uh, maturity and my spiritual walk around that to where I, I could take responsibility for what I did. And... Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, I definitely sat around feeling like a failure, uh, hmm. because I was, I, I thought, Hey, this is the stuff all worked. It all worked. And then all of a sudden it didn't work. And, uh, and, and once I realized it, that it was me that built this and it was me that signed this paperwork and it was me that made these decisions that set up these variables, um, that's pretty crushing. 
Yeah, but I'm wondering, Dave, I mean, you on the flip side, you had you succeeded, right? Had those banks not called in the debt and uh, you turned that four million into eight and today a hundred, you would have been seen as a genius. People would have said, look, you know, he took all these loans out and, and look, he turned it into a hundred million dollars. I mean, in some ways, right? Yes, it was your responsibility. You signed those papers and stuff, but you also got really unlucky. Yeah, I, 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 uh, my friend Jim Collins uh, has written a book called Great by Choice, and he, he is a big academic, and he says, Dave, we've actually quantified that, that luck is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a series of decisions. There's outside variables that play, but uh, you control the controllables and the people that are and the companies that are great. It's by choice. It's the, the truth is, is the guys that do what I was doing, almost none of them make it 10 years. I have never met someone that does the nothing down real estate seminar mm-hmm. garbage and it 10 years later is still still doing it. So what is the trans? I mean, you're feeling sorry for yourself. You're blaming everybody. But at a certain point, you start to realize that it's your you were the one who made those decisions. That's that's actually kind of a difficult transition to make. What What was the sort of the mental leap that enabled you to start to see it that way? Well, I, I I think it's just how we healed emotionally and spiritually, and hmm. uh, you and Sharon. Uh, yes, I I you know I had met God in that process and became a Christian, hmm. and uh, so I started actually understanding that you know if you're a farmer and you plant corn, you should never be shocked that corn grows. Yeah, and so there's a cause and effect to uh, financial principles, business principles, life principles. Uh, sowing and reaping. And so I had, you know, built this thing that looked glorious on the outside, but it was a facade. It was it was very poorly built on very badly structured debt uh, and too much debt. And, um, uh, you know, I, I truly did not know what I was doing and it caught up with me. Hmm. And And really at this time, you're also sort of undergoing a personal transformation and really becoming a Christian, as, as you describe, um, and that sort of reflecting on what it meant to be a Christian, that is what started to kind of force you to question the decisions you made. Exactly. And, and to just say, you know, as a part of my faith walk, I'm going to have to heal here. There, there's plenty of things to, plenty of people and plenty of concepts that I can blame, but my not knowing about the law of gravity did not keep it from kicking in when I jumped off a building. Hmm. It still worked that way, whether I understood it, whether anybody explained it to me, whether it's not there. So now I need to know about the law of gravity and I, you know, I need some wisdom to go with my intellect. And, uh, and there's a little different thing going on there. So we, we just started that process of slowly taking responsibility and, and not in an unhealthy, toxic way, but just saying, all right, so that means also that I can make different decisions and have different outcomes. Hmm. I do control uh, large portions of my future. And so I've got all these lemons. I might as well make some lemonade with it. Hmm. So by 25, you're a millionaire. By 30, you were broke, basically. Exactly. And um, and it sounds like you really started to become more and more influenced by your faith. Was there a person or, 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 or people that kind of also gave you tough love and said, hey, Dave, you know, like, this is this is you. You know, you're the guy that decided to, to do these things and you're the guy that can dig yourself out of it. Well, people that truly love you, if all you're doing is whining all the time, eventually will have enough of it and tell you. <laughs> and, um, I, I, you know, I had a good friend, uh, 
buddy of mine uh, at the church, but he's just a business guy and I'm sitting at lunch, you know, whining about how this is everybody's fault. And he said, look, you know, you've got a story to tell here. Hmm. You've already lived a lifetime and you're not even 30. There's something here that can be used. There has to be some redemption story in this process and you're not going to find it whining. Hmm. So, so this guy that you're, you're sitting down with says, hey, you've had this experience. Why don't you figure out a way to use this experience and help other people? Exactly. Huh. Which it, I was kind of scratching around the edges of that anyway, because I had friends come to us and say, well, you guys didn't get a divorce. And, hey, we're behind on our bills. And it's not it's not millions of dollars, but we've got a mess over here. And we're feeling all the same fears and stress. And can you help us? And I went, well, yeah, I can show you exactly what we did and what we shouldn't have done. And, I, you know, I can tell you from uh, best practices and worst practices, <laughs> we can combine those and we'll come up with a plan. And, uh, and, and I had started studying scripture for what it says about money, biblical finance, if you will, which is really nothing more than common sense. Uh, but I, common sense is not often taught in academia. And so I didn't have any, um, and, um, live on less than you make, um, save money. I didn't do any of those things. Hmm. And so I started just applying those principles to uh, our personal lives and then sitting down with other friends just over coffee, what probably were my first coaching or counseling sessions, but unpaid, just showing someone how to do a budget with a yellow pad. People would come to you and say, hey, you really screwed up, Dave. And um, and it seems like you're kind of figuring out how to get out of that situation. And I've really screwed up. Can you help me too? Like that was what people would say. Exactly. And huh. as we dug into it years later, we started realizing that almost everybody has has done something. Now, sure. you, you might not have gone up in a ball of flame like I did, uh, but most everyone has had some really stupid moments with money. And they look back and go, man, I just. And so there's a lot of shame, a lot of condemnation, uh, 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 self-directed by most people on this subject. And the beauty of our story of having done stuff dumb with zeros on the end, I mean, I got a Ph.D. in UMB is it gives <laughs> other people permission to talk to me then. Yeah. All right. So you decide, I guess, that that really your mission should be to help other people who are kind of struggling. And I'm, I guess initially it started with what people in your church and your community, like in your neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. We just uh, took these principles and it turned into a Sunday school class at the church. Huh. Uh, from there, a guy called with a restaurant chain and said, hey, one of our regional managers is about to lose his house. Can you sit down with him and help him? I'll, wow. I'll pay the fee. Um, and I, well, I didn't know what to charge because there wasn't a fee. Right. And so um, he, he paid me a couple of hundred dollars, and I sat down and worked out a deal with the mortgage company and you know, used my knowledge of having bought foreclosures before, and then I was one. So I had a full look on this thing, a 360-degree view. Wow. So essentially your consulting career begins when this guy from the church says, hey, can you help my one of my managers? And and then I guess you sort of by, by accident become a, a consultant. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then I just thought the, the psychological rewards were off the chain. I, I, I would get so excited. So fun. I want to do it 24 seven. And um, in a sense, 30 years later, it's still what I do. So here, here's something interesting. In the Bible, there is this concept of biblical finance, which a lot of people are not familiar with, even people who are religious. But what is it? What like How did you even begin to sort of consult the Bible for financial advice? How did that, how did that happen? Well, I was a new believer, and so I was consulting uh, the scriptures on how to 
be married, how to be right. a dad, how to right. handle my money. And, and, um, and there were people uh, teaching. Uh, in those days, probably the figurehead most was a guy named Larry Burkett in the evangelical world was teaching a series on what the Bible says about money. <laughs> and, um, and it was, uh, you know, very, very grandma's common sense. I mean, have a budget, live on less than you make, save money, invest money, diversify. Um, all of these things are in, you know, our, you know, contentment, uh, all you know, avoid debt, the borrower slave to the lender, all these things are in there. And I just started looking at them and saying, well, as I compare those to my academic experience, some of them match and some of them don't. And I think I've now discovered why I crashed. Huh. Uh, the ones that didn't match. And so I'm going to go with this as my source of truth rather than uh, academia, which had not, had not proven to play out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. And what did you sort of, what was the kind of overriding theme that you noticed when you read passages in the, in the scripture about money? Like what was the message that you, you constantly come back to? Easy to understand and hard to do. Hmm. Because it's it's easy to grasp staying out of debt. It's easy to grasp doing a budget. But I've, that means I've got to control the guy in my mirror. Yeah. And he's a problem child. Yeah. Because it's interesting. When, when a lot of people think of the Bible they think of and money, they think of like, a, you know, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Uh, that's easier than, than a rich person getting into heaven. Or, uh, you know, money being the root of all evil or, you know, uh, you know, 
Jesus Christ throwing the money lenders out of the temple. Like money is, I think most of us don't think of of financial references in the Bible as reflections of, uh, you know, goodness. Is that wrong? Is that just a misinterpretation? Well, there's just, uh, you know, glancing blows at some of the different concepts is what it amounts to. And, uh, you know, the Bible does not say money's the root of all evil. It says the love yeah. of money's the root of all evil. And I think most people of faith or, uh, or even if they're not people of faith, we can all pretty much agree greedy is not a good idea. And that's all that's saying. Um, you know, and, and Jesus did teach more on money than he did actually on love. Uh, but he was doing it in a way to teach us how to live our lives well. Uh, and so the vast majority of money scriptures are not uh, hyper-spiritual. They're just instructional. Hmm. And if you read through Proverbs, there's 31 Proverbs. Read one a day for 31 days and do that over and over and over again. You'll have a master's degree in finance if you understand what's in there hmm. uh, because it's really not rocket science. It's But the problem is it's so simple and therefore so profound yeah. that uh, people tend to gloss over it or they want to just not look at it because they, you know, they've had a toxic experience with faith in some way or people of faith in some way that, that you know, there's so many goofballs around uh, any version of faith and Christianity is no exception. So if they saw some goofball doing stuff that was just not credible, then they throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, you know, the book of wisdom, Proverbs is really not wise. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, the the sort of classic entrepreneurial stories are um, do what you know, right? Start with what you know, and what you knew was your faith, your Christianity, and then it sounds like you f- you were able to communicate financial advice by drawing from the Bible that that you could connect with people in your community by saying, "Look, here's what I do, here's what I did, here's where I got that inspiration, here's the passage," and. This is how you need to kind of think about your own situation. Exactly. And, and you know, we believe in uh, having manners. And so it depends on whose home I'm in, uh, so to speak, as to how I'm going to communicate the message. I can communicate the exact same message and turn it into a Bible study if I'm in a church. Uh, I, I spoke to a group of juvenile court judges, 500 of them yesterday, and I communicated a leadership message that was consistent with Scripture, but it was not a Bible study. I was in a mainstream setting, and so mm-hmm. I'm going to—I'm in their home, so to speak, and I'm going to have manners, and uh, I wouldn't come into a person, uh, a, a person of a different faith, and you know, kind of try to pound them with the the Bible. That that's inappropriate, but it is my viewpoint, and this is what I teach, and I can do that with uh, and be winsome to whichever environment I'm in. So as you started to to consult more and more, I mean, on the one hand, you are giving people advice on how to get themselves out of debt. You are still kind of clawing your way out of debt and I guess sort of accidentally building up a new kind of business. Well, we went three or four years and then uh, started doing some one-on-one coaching and teaching a little class in the mainstream that we actually charged for and uh, getting paid a little bit for some speaking engagements here or there. Um, uh, it really wasn't generating much no. revenue, but yeah. it was enough to eat on. And uh, but, but So what was going on? Were more and more people just kind of clamoring and, and saying, hey, talk to Dave. He knows He knows about this. He's your guy. And then more and more people would come to you. And eventually, you know, your time is valuable. You had to charge a little bit for your consulting advice. And uh, at a certain point, it became clear that this was going to be the business that you should build? I'm entrepreneurial enough. I saw the need. I Mm. mean, getting people out of debt, this is not exactly a niche. No. I mean, me and Jenny Craig got a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, she just has a different uh, a, di- a different product different line product. that's also yeah. broadly needed by the vast majority of the population. Yeah. So, I guess kind of a turning point for you, Dave, was uh, in around 90, 1992, where you started to appear on a, a local show um, in Nashville, a radio show talking about finance. What what happened? Did they approach you and say, hey, we heard, heard about what you're doing at the church, and can you maybe come on and, you know, talk about it on the radio? Actually, I was in a real estate club, one of those nothing down clubs, and uh, we had a speaker coming to town, and I went in there to promote him on this show that was pretty much a Saturday Night Live skit. It was kind of like a bad financial hour or something on Saturday Night Live. It was horrible. And so uh, we kind of talked about the promotion of this club thing I wanted to do. And then he said, so I hear you're also doing some helping people with foreclosures and stuff and people that got financial problems. Hey, folks, if you got any financial problems, this guy will help you. And the phone started ringing. Hmm. And so we started taking calls for the next 20 or 30 minutes and uh, people that were hurting and were able to help them a little bit. And um, another guy and I went down and talked that radio station into letting us do a one-hour show for free, hmm. and we told the guy running the station, if we're really bad, you can just cut our pay in half. <laughs> so you go on this show, and people have all these questions about debt, and, and who was calling in? Like, what kind of problems did people have? Everything, from marriage problems over money to uh, how to get my kid through college to I'm behind on credit cards, I'm behind on my house. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to do a budget. I don't know how to spell mutual fund. Hmm. I don't know how to pick my 401k. I thought that was a race. We started realizing that that the base knowledge of the average person, even with a four-year degree in finance, on personal finance is is ridiculously low. Hmm. And you're, it's almost like, I mean, the, the analogy I can make is like car talk, right? It's like car talk for finance. Like people were giving you all these different scenarios that you kind of had to think think of think of sort of ways to give them advice on the fly, I guess. That's true. And, um, you know, we, we would sometimes we just had to say the truth, which was, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Tax law. I hate tax law. And I, a lot of times the answer, if you ask Dave about tax stuff is, I don't know. Yeah. As you started getting more and more people calling in on this show, and, and this became kind of a, a daily thing eventually, right? You, you were doing this. I guess, as a volunteer at the beginning. And, and you kind of, I guess, what's what's interesting about your story is that you really start to develop a method and, a, a, a you know, kind of begin to codify your thinking into a series of rules, starting with something called that you call the seven baby steps. Um, what What is that? How did that sort of come about? Well, as we were teaching classes and doing uh, seminars and writing and interacting with people on the air, start realizing that people understood the principles of being on a budget or living on Mm -hmm. less than you make or having an emergency fund or investing for retirement or saving for your kid's college or getting your home paid off. They understand the principles, but they kept, the the questions started to be over and over and over again. What do I do first? I'm paralyzed by too many things coming at me. Do I buy life insurance? Do I start my retirement? I really want to save for my kid's college. And I've got $56,000 in credit card debt and two car leases. And where do I start? And uh, so what we figured out was is that uh, they needed the, uh, we called it the instructions on how to eat an elephant. How do you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. And you have to have a plan. How do you get to Florida? You leave and have a plan. You have a a map that you're going to follow, a clear path. And so um, that's what the baby steps developed out of, was a very practical way to implement basic 
personal financial principles, con, uh, common sense financial principles, in a way that caused you to get free of debt, but so that you could be outrageously generous, so that you could build wealth and retire with dignity. Hmm. That first book that you wrote, I think it's called Financial Peace, right? Mm-hmm. When, you, when that book came out, you were not yet a wealthy person, right? You had oh, no. come out, right? You had come out of debt. Um, did a part of you feel like, God, who, I don't know, are people going to buy this book? Because I'm not like a poster child for success. I mean, yeah, I guess my <laughs> success is like getting out of, you know, kind of getting out of debt. That is a form of success. But I don't know. Did a part of you feel conflicted about what people would think of that book or if people say, oh, who, who are you, Ramsey? You know, you just geez, all you've done is got, gone bankrupt. Yeah, a, a lot of people did. Mm. <laughs> and some of them still do. Mm. Uh, no, I, I just all I knew was the experience that we had had. Mm. And I knew I could teach that. And uh, my pastor used to say that a man with an experience is not at the mercy of a man with an opinion. And we had walked through it. We knew what debt did to us. It about destroyed us. We knew what not having a wisdom and a good plan did to us. We knew that co-signing didn't work. We knew that foreclosures on the horizon when you break these rules. We knew what the stress and strain was on our marriage. We knew how scared we were, how terrified we were. Mm. And you really can't argue with me about my story. That's my story. And right. that's what financial peace was about. And, you know, here's what I learned from my story. And it's God's and grandma's ways of handling money uh, called common sense, which is Ben Franklin said is not so common. As a matter of fact, it's very marketable. All right. So you are um, the show is growing. You're getting on more and more stations. What what was the appeal? Do you think it was the the faith driven part, the Christian part of, of your message? Or do you think that a lot of people just had no idea that this was part of your life? Um, well, I mean, we, it was not an overtly Christian show. It was not yeah. on Christian radio. And so um, I've never sh- been shy about who I am, but I also am willing to help anyone. Um, and so I don't, you don't have to be, you don't have to share my, even share my value system for me to help you. Uh, you don't get to tell me to have a different value system, but I'll help you wherever you are and, and, uh, and care about you and, and you know, just be a real person on the other end who's also been scared. Um, scared doesn't know religion. I mean, scared's everybody mm. at some time. So, uh, or, or jubilant and, you know, victory and success and, and cheering. And I want to cheer with you when you win. And uh, I, I love you see, to see people win. And so that's that's been the appeal of it. Uh, the faith undergirding is very, very attractive to uh, people of faith. Um, and, um, the fact that I'm, uh, open about it is attractive to, uh, people who believe that you should be able to do that. It's very off-putting to others. Yeah. Uh, the good news is on balance, uh, more have come to us for help and, uh, than have gone away because of who I am. So a big part of your message, if I understand it correctly, is that debt is something that you really need to avoid, that, that it's better to be debt-free than to carry debt, any debt at all, And which I like. I love that idea um, personally. But first of all, let's just break this down. What is it about debt, in your view, that is such a problem? Um, mathematically, your most powerful wealth-building tool is your income. Yeah, until you have a net worth in excess of $10 million. And after that, probably your assets are your most powerful wealth building tool. But prior Mm -hmm. to that, it's going to be your income that gets you there. And um, so 
if you give all of your income away, you've given away your most powerful wealth building tool. And when you give it all away to a car company and the car loses 70% of its value in the first four years, and then you scratch your head and wonder why your kid's college fund isn't funded. Well, that's just violating common sense. That's just dumb. Hmm. And I've done dumb. I know what dumb looks like, but that's just dumb. And so uh, this idea that somehow you're going to get away with playing with car payments and playing with MasterCard payments and keeping Sally May around so long you think she's a pet, that, um, you know, if you keep this stuff around, it's sucking the very marrow out of your bones mathematically. And then what's happened is we've we've just completed this huge study of millionaires, the largest one ever done in North America, with over 10,000 millionaires surveyed, and, and we found most of them started with nothing, became millionaires, and appall debt. They hate it. None of them said, oh, I use OPM, other people's money. I use good right. debt. I believe in good debt. None of them said that. Yeah. And these are regular people that own a hardware store, that are a teacher, that are a salesman, uh, just regular folks out there that you run into in your community that just said, hey, I'm not going to give all my money to a bank. I've noticed their building is larger than my house and their furniture is nicer than mine. That must not be an accident. Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of debt, there's a psychological thing about it, right, which is this thing hanging over you. Like like when you get a – when I get a bill and, and, and maybe it got lost in the mail and then you get the one with the red thing on the top saying, you know, past notice, it, it'll, you know, that freaks me out. But but then I've got, I've got friends who are, you know, economists and know a lot about finance and they'll say, look, if, if you've got a really low interest loan, like a mortgage – like for example, my, my home mortgage rate is really low. It's, it's 3 point something percent, really small uh, percentage rate, uh, they'll say to me, hey, you know, that's debt uh, uh, that you should carry, that you should pay that off slowly. You shouldn't just pay that off quickly because you're going to get the deduction and all those things. Does, does that make sense to you? It sounds like they went to the same class I went to in college. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is the data is different than the academic theory. The actual data in the marketplace of people who really build wealth, again, I have never met someone ever, and I've been doing this 30 years, I've met billionaires, I've met people that are decamillionaires, I've met thousands and thousands and thousands of millionaires, I have never in all of that time met one that said, Dave, you know, I used that low interest on my home to build wealth. Hmm. They never tell me that. As a matter of fact, the average millionaire pays off their home in 10.2 years. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the only people who can be wrong twice a day and keep their job are weather forecasters and economists. So I really don't care what their theory is. I'm talking yeah. to real people who are winning. And so really the idea is if you can eliminate your debt, that's a secret. That's sort of the, the, the kind of the, the – it's not really a secret, but that's kind of the, the – when people say, hey, Dave, what's your secret? What's the magic, you know, formula? You, it's really getting rid of debt. Because people want to live their dreams. They want to be outrageously generous. They want to be able to change their family tree. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have any payments, you can put 15% of your income in your 401k. Now, 15% of your income, if you only make a household income, a below average of $50,000 a year is $7,500 a year, $625 a month, which from age 30 to age 65 in a poorly performing mutual fund will be over $2 million. Hmm. 
That's the power of not having a house payment. That's the power of not having car payments. That's the power of not having a, a MasterCard and spending more than I make and acting like I'm in Congress and I can print money or something. It just doesn't work. So when you have people who call in and say, yeah, you know, we took this loan out on a – we got this really nice car or, we, you know, we, we took this loan to buy – you know, this house or whatever. I mean, do you also sort of counsel people to, I don't know, to be kind of more modest with, with what they buy, to be less materialistic? Or is that not not something that you really care about? Sure. I mean, I've made a lot of money in my life, but you mm-hmm. never make enough money to buy anything you want. Yeah. Because there's an infinite number of things you can buy. And so at some point, you have to learn about this thing called contentment. At some point, you have to say, hey, stuff is fine get you some stuff but if you eat enough lobster it tastes like soap i mean there's only so <laughs> many things you can do with money and, and at some point it's an, the end game of it is is empty and, and so the, the whole thing is yeah i need to limit the car i buy i need to limit the house i live in i need to limit my spending at the mall i need to limit the price of my purse or my jacket or my haircut or whatever so that it's within the bounds of common sense so that i can live my dreams if you will live like no one else later you can live and give like no one else. Is that, I mean, that's interesting because that really, when I talk to people, I talk to obviously a lot of very wealthy people, right? And it's interesting because many of them don't sort of see their money as their money. I mean, especially when you're talking about a billionaire, right? You can't spend it fast enough. Most of that money is going to be given away, has to be given away. Is that, in your view, kind of one of the points of of accumulating a lot of money to, to give it away? Well, you quickly learn um, whether you're in a situation like you're describing or whether you're a person of faith that you don't own it. As a person mm-hmm. of faith, I, I believe I don't own anything. I'm just managing it for God. Huh. And a part of one of, my, one of my directions as I manage his money is for the good of my household. Um, past that, it's for the good of others. Past that, it's for the good of an inheritance uh, and, you know, passing money along. And so I'm managing it for the good of the community, for the good of my family, my future, uh, and my, uh, my, my lineage as well. And so, uh, that you start to realize I'm a manager, I'm a steward of these incredible responsibilities. Um, and and it just, it, it ceases to become all about you. Otherwise you just turn inward and become one of those icky people. And there's a few of those with money, but not many. Dave, I'm not naming any names, but some of your competitors um, on the radio, they really, um, part of their currency, so to speak, is anger. Anger about the system, about politicians, um, pointing fingers at people, rallying people up. That is not, it's, it's, that's not what you do. You, it sounds like you're basically trying to say to people, look, forget about, you know, the the political situation or forget about uh, an individual uh, in your state or, or a policy, like you actually have agency. You actually have the ability to 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 write your destiny. Is that is that right? Is that what the, what you're trying to say to people? Yeah, I, I it, it does me no good to convince someone to be angry at something they can do nothing about. Mm. I can't fix what goes on in the White House. I mean, I, I I've had a political person asked me to come testify before Congress. And I said, no, because <laughs> you don't, you're not going to do a thing I say. So why am I going to waste my good air? And the only reason you're doing it is you want to somehow cozy up to my brand to get votes and, and, and you're not going to do any of this stuff. So, you know, it's just, it's a manipulative garbage. So I'm going to stay home and help people. 
and I'm going to use, you know, save my jet fuel. You know, it's just not going to do it. Mm. And um, because I, I have prospered and I have failed during every possible uh, type of political regime in America, extreme liberals, extreme conservatives and uh, you know, misbehavior of all kinds in the White House. And it turns out that what I do every day when I get up and go to work and the decisions I make has a whole lot more to do with whether I succeed than what those goobers do. Yeah, I mean, you have had a life of total loss, right, and collapse, right? And and, and that really informed the way you think about, about the world today. I mean... When you were 25, 26, you thought you were the smartest guy on the planet. Now you have written best-selling books. You sold 11 million copies. Lots of people think you are the smartest financial guy on the planet. But do you still, like, if you were uh, evaluating Dave Ramsey from the outside, would you be skeptical of Dave Ramsey? Or would you think, yeah, he is the smartest guy on the planet? I'm skeptical of anybody who thinks he's the smartest guy on the planet. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I learn something every day. I'm hmm. older and wiser than I was when I started this journey, uh, but this journey's not over. Uh, my wife is not married to the same guy she married 37 years ago, and she will tell you, thank God. So um, I'm a lot better leader in my business than I was when I started at 32 years old. I'm uh, much more knowledgeable of digital things than I couldn't even spell digital a few years ago. And I, I'm continually learning, and I'm the first to admit I don't know everything. What I do know, I do know. And I'm okay with that, too. That's Dave Ramsey, author of Financial Peace and other best-selling books, CEO of Ramsey Solutions and host of The Dave Ramsey Show, one of the most listened to radio shows and podcasts in the country. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.